Hey guys, it's Amber. I have a favor to ask, especially from those of you who have been listening for a while now. Would you be so kind to rate and review this podcast? Why? Because ratings and reviews get noticed. And honestly, we want more people to hear the good news about Jesus and the everyday applications that help us know and love God more. And don't forget to share these episodes with others. Thanks for your support. Today, we're on the fourth episode of our series titled, There's More to the Story. And today's episode is called Trauma, Tragedy, and Trajectory. Hey guys, it's Amber, wife, mother, warrior, type A child of God. Here at Little Things, we examine everyday issues from a biblical perspective with one simple goal, to know and love God more. Thanks for joining me. And really where I'm taking you in this episode is two places. First of all, God's plan when things go from bad to worse. And second of all, living with each other's freedoms and the the freedoms that we have in Christ and giving each other grace. So first of all, Esther chapter three happens five years after Esther has become queen And I just want to point out, I guess it's because I'm a woman, and as I'm reading this and studying this, I can't get too far from this, that this is not your typical marriage like you and I might have. So I'm in America. I've been married for 26 years. I'm married to a Christian man who's decent and kind. And, you know, Esther was married, A, first of all, she was a young woman, and she was married, second of all, to a heathen king who, you know, was sort of the top of the empire. So he was prone to vanity, arrogance, showing off all that he had. He maybe had some issues with drunkenness. Not going to totally say that, but we know that his feasting involved drinking. He um, wasn't used to getting told no. He had a harem of at least 400 women, young virgins who were taken and confiscated and at his disposal. So it wasn't certainly the kind of marriage like you or I might have. And this, I think, is really important to just keep in the back of your mind when you read this this account. And especially coming up in the next chapter, I think her hesitancy and the way she deals with Xerxes really is pretty understandable when you keep this in your back, the back of your mind. But before we get there, let's stay in Esther chapter three, where we are introduced to Haman. And we don't know much about him except for that the king elevated him and gave him the highest seat of honor among his nobles. He was second in command. And as such, everyone was to bow before him. And everybody did, except Mordecai. <laughs> So just a few things on this. First of all, the People's Bible mentions that other Jews in the Old Testament bowed down before other people. So Jacob bowed before Esau, David bowed before Saul in 1 Samuel 24 verse 8. Abraham bowed to the Hittite rulers. They were of heathen descent in Genesis 23:7. So it wasn't a quote-unquote, you know, Jewish precedent that you couldn't bow to anybody but God. Now I'm going to take us to the book of Daniel 
Daniel was a young man when he was taken in the first wave of exiles. He was taken to Babylon and he was put in the king's court. He was put in a, you know, sort of a program that trained these Jewish nobles to work for the king. And so they entered this program of studies and they, you know, had a three-year time period when they were trained and then he would put them in a position in his kingdom. And when Daniel was taken, he's a fine young man and he was astute. He was quick to learn and he just had a problem. And the problem was that the food that they offered him as they offered exiles from presumably other countries was food that he wasn't used to eating as a Jew. For one thing, you know, they didn't eat blood in the meat. They didn't eat pork. And for a second thing, the food in Babylon was very often offered as a sacrifice to a certain god. So the food, the meat, the wine was very often, you know, eaten as a tribute to one of their many gods. And they had many, many gods in Babylon. And so the whole idea of this whole eating thing, the meat and the wine, really was repulsive to Daniel. And so he went, you know, above and beyond. He he took the extra step to get a leniency to be ex- excluded from having to eat the food and the wine. He got, if you will, a religious exemption so that he wouldn't have to eat the the meat and the wine. He wanted to just eat the plants and the vegetables and drink water and so that he wouldn't defile himself. And all this is to say, basically, that he, Daniel, and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they found it repulsive. They thought they would defile themselves if they did this certain thing, if they ate this meat, if they drank this wine. And so they wanted to abstain from it. Was that what was going on with Mordecai? Was it simply that he refused to bow before Haman on the grounds that he found it repulsive for some reason because of the man that Haman was, that he saw what kind of person he was and the things that he was doing? Or was it something more? Did he see that everyone who was bowing down before him seemed to be worshiping him as if he was a god? And that was repulsive to him. We don't know. All the commenters, um, commentaries declare the same thing, that he refused on the grounds that he was a Jew. And the people's Bible really just puts a stop to a second guessing or wondering or deciding or declaring that this is why Mordecai did it. And they say simply this. Again, as so often in the book of Esther, the actions of the participants are simply reported without any analysis or moral evaluation of their motives. Nothing in the text indicates whether Mordecai's actions were justified or whether they were a case of misguided zeal. We simply learn how the crisis for the Jews came about. In other words, the writer of the People's Bible said, hey, look, we don't know, so let's not guess. And in fact, I really think that something 
that is just a really good thing to do all the way around. Years ago, there was a woman in my Bible studies, and she made sure to keep me in line in terms of if I said something like, well, you know, it looks to me like maybe this happened because of this. She'd be like, Amber, stop. Like, unless we know, let's not take that leap. Like, there's some things that even the commentaries say, yes, I mean, this clearly means this. But this is a perfect example of something in scripture where we really don't know why Mordecai didn't bow down. And so for us to go above and beyond and say, well, this must be in this, we're not in the place of God. If God didn't tell us, let's just stick with what we have and let's just go with what God gives us. What we do know is that because Mordecai refused to bow down, two things happened. First of all, all the other guys who were bowing down before Mordecai, they decided they wanted to tell Mordecai about it because they didn't know if more, uh, no, I'm sorry, not Mordecai, Haman about it because they wanted to see if Haman was going to tolerate it. And so we do know that there was an issue with everybody else that was bowing down because they saw he refused to bow down and something about it didn't sit right with them. So we do know that. And the second thing we know is that Haman hated Mordecai because he refused to bow down. And so he hated him so much, it wasn't enough to just get rid of Mordecai. He wanted to get rid of all of the Jews. So he went to King Xerxes and he had a plan. And he told the king about his plan. He said, basically, there's these people in the kingdom who don't obey the king's rules and they're different from everybody else. So, you know, we should probably destroy them. And he offered him a huge amount of money. Here's where we see the kind of man that Xerxes is. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit that I have never had a position of power, anything close to what Xerxes has. I mean, I have, I have been a mom and I've been a Sunday school superintendent with, you know, four or five Sunday school teachers beneath me and all of them were my friends. So I didn't even look at that more like uh, being above them. I looked at it more like I was the one who was, you know, doing the organizational thing and, and giving them their materials and that type of thing. So I certainly am not in any position to know what it is to have any sort of power. Clearly, I'm a long, a far cry from knowing what it is to be in charge of an empire. And yet, he didn't even talk about what was going on. He didn't even ask any questions. Like, what kind of people are these people? Where are they at? What makes them different? Nothing. The only thing he did was say, okay, sounds good. Do whatever you want. Now, there's some question as to if Xerxes actually took the money from Haman or not. So, even in the People's Bible, it says, you know, the NIV might not be the best translation. Um, the Amplified Version 
of this text says that Xerxes responded to Haman by saying, the silver is given to you and the people also do with them as you please. There's some confusion as to if Xerxes took the money or didn't take the money. Either way, what we see in Xerxes is total and complete trust in Haman to give him basically a blank check. Do what you want to do. Whatever you think is good, you do. Not a problem with me. And then they issued this edict. They sent it out and they went to drink. And we're told that the people of Susa were bewildered when they heard, because there's this edict that goes out that's like, oh, by the way, on such and such a date, you know, you can rise up and fight against the Jews and take their stuff as plunder. So Franzman notes that the day for destruction was 12 months away. It's the last month of the year. Now, in Haman's estimation, that might have been like, this is awesome. This gives us so much time to plan, execute, carry this out. He was a man who was clearly superstitious, that he was just okay, you know, flipping the dice and whatever that said, that would be the date. He didn't have a problem with it at all. The great thing, like Franzman notes, is that this gives the Jews time too. So here we have a man determining because his pride was hurt, because one person didn't give him the honor that he saw due, he determined that a whole race needed to be wiped out. So here's a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, one thing that this really speaks to me about (laughs) is how often I am frustrated at the rulers of the world because they don't act like Christians. I don't know why I expect people who aren't Christians, people who are clearly worldly, to act the way that God's people act, because it is such a different thing, the way the people of the world act, and the leaders of the world, and the way Christian leadership looks. And this has been huge and distinguishable. I mean, the difference is vast. It was in Jesus' time, and it still is today. So the people of the world, the rulers of the world, the the elite, those who have power and prestige, you know, they typically have a eat, drink, and marry, seek pleasure, you know, get what you can out of life, look out for number one, take care of yourself, watch out for your political party, um, you know, be friends with people as long as they can help you and give you what you need. But if they're not useful or they no longer validate you, you can clearly cancel them, get rid of them. It's not a problem. Whereas God's way is so, so different. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus flips that whole idea of leadership on its head. Everything is God's. We are merely stewarding whatever God has put in our hands. So we don't seek our own honor. We seek God's honor. We consider others better than ourselves. We serve others the way Jesus, who is true God, when he came and took on humanity, he served others. This life, this is a blip. This is not what we are living for. We're not living for all the fame and all the prestige and all the power that we can get here because this is nothing. Eternity is what lasts forever. And ultimately, we answer to God. God allows us to have positions of leadership so that we can help, so that we can steer people, so that we can lead people, guide them, show them a different way, but not so that we can build ourselves up and be full of arrogance and pride and make others serve us. I always tell my children, leadership, plain and simply, is just service. That's all it is. Just taking into account what Jesus said. If you are in charge, you're usually the first one there and the last one to leave. You're the one who's setting up chairs. You're the one who's getting everything together. You're making sure everybody has what they need. That's leadership. The second thing I want to talk about is just the freedoms that we have in Christ and how important it is that we don't make absolutes where the Bible doesn't make absolutes. And it's it's so hard and it can be such a temptation. And it's something that I need to remind myself of often. So I just want to read from Romans chapter 14, where the Apostle Paul says this, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies to ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? We can do this about just about everything. I'm just going to give you a couple examples. I don't even know if they're good examples, but these are just things that come to the top of my mind. So for instance, how you celebrate a holiday, um, what you do on a holiday. Some people go to church and have Thanksgiving dinner and then watch football all day, whereas other people, you know, would consider watching football not a very good use of of a quote-unquote holiday. It was interesting. I was reading Luther's large catechism, and I was uh, reading what he said about the third commandment, and he is pretty strong about what holidays are for, and that they are days set aside for God, and and not for pleasure, and not for... Um, 
our own, you know, partaking in that type of thing. And I thought, oh, Luther, you would just, you would just cringe if you had half an idea of what we do on Thanksgiving these days. That's not a very good idea. Um, that's not a good example, maybe, but um, maybe even how some people see Sunday as completely sacred. And in our family, for instance, um, Sunday or our Sabbath day is not a day set aside for just, um, you know, family time or, or not doing anything. Because my husband's always had to work weekends as a nurse. And so we really uh, don't look at Sundays the way a lot of people do. We go to church and Sunday school. I always have been able to, thank God, um, do that on Sundays. He typically will come after work if he works the night shift. He'll go to the quick early service and then go home and go to bed. Um, but a lot of times I'll do things on Sunday, chores, etc., so that if he's off on Monday, we can have that day together. So um, someone looking from the outside may look at our lives and say, I don't take Sunday very seriously, but that would be silly. Um, because I've always, you know, made Sunday a point, uh, a, quite a day in our, our life just so that we could go to Sunday school and church and set that apart. Um, maybe a better way, a better example is looking at things like dating I've seen some Christians, there's even been some Christian books um, on dating, you know, that they say you shouldn't kiss before you get married. You shouldn't, you know, if you want to be completely pure, you you have to follow these things. And, you know, where I, I do see, I do see where they're coming from and, and that there is good data out there that says that even when you kiss, you start um, a chemical reaction in your brain. But, you know, I think if it's not in the Bible, we have to be super, super careful that we don't make rules where rules don't exist. We have to be careful that we don't, um, you know, become like Pharisees because that was what the Pharisees did. They really thought that they needed to take things a couple steps further than God. If God said this... Well, he clearly didn't explain it well enough. So what this means is this. And in doing so, they created so many more rules than God ever gave. And I think what we have to do is teach what's in the word. I shouldn't say I think. We teach the word. And we direct people to get closer to the Lord. And then we allow the Holy Spirit to do his part. Because the Holy Spirit will convict you, and the Holy Spirit will guide you, and the Holy Spirit will keep you in line if you're seeking a relationship with God. And if, um, as, a, as a couple, you're seeking a relationship with God, there are so many things parenting-wise. Um, even as much, how much time do we commit to sports? Is sports taking up too much time in our children's lives? Or you know, this family, they put their kids to bed super, super late. And clearly, they don't feed their kids the, uh, you know, the best, the healthiest diet, if you don't eat organic food, or if you allow your kids to eat Cheetos, or, or what have you, like you're a worse parent. And we can look at each other and absolutely demolish each other by judging each other. Um, I see it in what people wear to church. And especially teenagers. I 
had a situation where somebody was coming to church with us and this young man always wear wore a hat, uh, like a baseball cap. And some people were really offended by it. Now he came from a different culture, a culture where wearing a hat was sort of like a very um, end thing to do. And, and he was sort of dressing like with his best clothes to come to church. And he wore this hat and we finally had an usher come in and say, you know, you have to remove your hat. You can't have your hat on when you're in church. The funny thing about that is contemporary Christian music. There you go. That's something that a lot of people argue about. But I listen to a lot of contemporary Christian music. And some of my favorite musicians, David Crowder, he wears a baseball cap pretty much every time he's leading worship. So to that, I say, you know, I understand there was a time in American history where it was very offensive. It was disrespectful to wear a hat in certain situations. Cultural norms have changed. Things are different now. Is that still an act of disrespect? Or is it not? And that's one of those things that we can look at a person and be like, man, you're way out of line. Um, Contemporary Christian music, I brought that up. I remember going to speak at an event where I uh, had, had a young woman ask me about listening to contemporary Christian music. And she said, I heard you say that you listened to this and, and, you know, we have teachers who tell us not to do that. And I was like, put in this terrible, terrible spot where, you know, here is someone who's confused. And I'm saying one thing and their teachers are saying the other thing. And I said, you know, definitely it's an area in your life that you need discernment. I 100% credit my spiritual growth to listening to Christian radio. I was, I was challenged and convicted and pushed and um, just really, uh, I guess just pushed to learn the Bible and to read the Bible and to crave the Bible in a way that I wasn't seeing in my direct community. And it actually sort of saved my sanity because I happened, and I'm putting that in quotes, it's no coincidence, um, God directed me, I believe, to the Christian radio station in my town when my second child was born and I was losing my mind because I had a daughter who was up all day long And I had my son, my newborn son, who was up all night long. And I was in a terrible place. I went for his six-week checkup. And the doctor didn't even look at my son. He looked at me and he said, are you getting any sleep? And I said, really, no. And he said, something's got to change, Amber. And I remember feeling like I was losing my mind. And I had always listened to the, um, what do you call it? Um, oh, you know, like, 
I listened to Minnesota Public Radio and I used to listen to it was classical music. And one day, for whatever reason, I just hit the wrong switch. And just one little station away from the classical radio station was our Christian radio station. And Julianne Barnhill was talking about her book, She's Gonna Blow, Unfocus on the Family. And I sat and bawled my eyes out because here was this Christian woman for the first time in my life speaking with such transparency and being so completely honest and so completely real about being in the depths of motherhood and feeling like she was about ready to lose her mind. And I thought, this is me. And I remember looking at the time and thinking, I will be back to listen to part two tomorrow. And so making sure that I turned my radio on at exactly that time the next day so I could hear the next episode of what she was saying. And then I started to listen to the other programs. I started to listen to Revive Our Hearts with, at the time, Nancy Lee DeMoss. Now she's Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth. And several other Christian programs. And this is the point I'm trying to get to. There, all throughout your Christian life, there is a desperate need for discernment. You need to hear the people that are speaking about the Word of God, and you need to be able to discern if what they say lines up with the Word or does not. If you listen to a Christian radio station, if you listen to Christian podcasts, if you listen to a Christian, if you go to a Christian concert, you're going to have people who say things that are totally different than what you've been taught. And you need to be able to go to the word and discern, does this line up or does it not? And if it, if you're not even sure, you know, you, you hear me talking all the time about the commentaries that I use. I use Warner Franzman. I use the People's Bible. Now I have inherited several other commentaries that I'm using. Um, but the point being this, that I go back to the Bible and to trusted resources. I go to pastors. If I'm really, really undecided and I still don't know what's right, you know, I'll go to a pastor. I'll email them and say, you know, what do you think about this? Or I heard this. You know the languages. <laughs> Could this be true? Is this not true? I can't find anything in my commentary. Can you can you trust can you show me some way? Go to the trusted voices of the people around you. My point is that to me, if I have to discern now and then, that is a trait of being a godly woman, a mature godly woman. And all the other things that I would lose if I would choose not to ever listen to another Christian podcast, not to ever listen to Christian music, not to ever put myself in a position that I am sitting and learning from someone else who's been it in, in those situations, I would lose too much. And so to that, I say Christian freedom. And I have tried very hard to um, 
use my Christian freedom without judging anybody else. I have had other people judge me. I have had a dear friend come up to me and say that she was very concerned that I opened myself up to Christian radio and to people who didn't believe um, the same way that I do. And I simply asked her for grace. I said, it's been life-changing for me. And um, pray for me. If I'm wrong, may God show me. And if I'm not, then please give me the grace of allowing my Christian walk to include this. Because her life, the woman who approached me and challenged me on this, was very, very different than my life. Very different um, set of scenarios. And, and you know what? Like I said, as a Christian mom, at a, Christian, at a certain time, I really needed something. And God gave me something, gave me other Christian women to walk alongside me and say, there's a way to honor God with motherhood. And it was life-changing. And it changed, very much changed the way I mothered. So all that is to say, let's give each other grace. If there are times that we need to go to each other and say, hey, I think you're going to straight, that's so important. That's part of our Christian walk. We're supposed to do that. That's a responsibility we all have. But if there are things that we see each other doing and we're like, hmm, I just don't know, I would suggest first you go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, is this person sinning by doing this? And second, I would suggest you look at the Gospels. Because Jesus just didn't seem to get caught up in all the things that everybody else was getting caught up on. He tended to look at people's hearts. And really the ones that he got upset with most were the religious people who were chasing people away saying, you shouldn't, you can't, don't you know? This is the way you have to do things if you're going to honor God. Something to think about. This has been little things because in God's kingdom, the little things are the big things. Thanks for listening to Little Things today. I know that there are so many things that you could listen to, so I don't take it for granted that you are here listening to me now. I want to listen to you. If you have any feedback or suggestions, if there's topics that you'd like to see me cover, or if you'd just like to say hi, go ahead and drop me an email at amber at timeofgrace.org.